we pray this message blesses and encourages you. Morning, everybody. As you will know, for the last number of weeks, we have been in our Storyteller series, and there's actually only a few weeks left at this stage. For me, it has absolutely flown. I'm loving all the different stories and looking at Jesus' interactions with people because they really reveal so much about him and about the Father and about the kingdom of God. Like, it's been such really good, rich stuff. So we have another parable today, but I actually don't remember if across the last few weeks anyone has actually mentioned the meaning of the word itself. So the word parable comes from the Greek parabole, excuse my pronunciation, para, which means beside, and balin, which means to throw. So in sum, it means to throw beside. And that makes perfect sense, I suppose, because as you probably know, a parable is a story where a familiar idea is thrown beside an unfamiliar one in such a way that the comparison helps people to grasp a particular truth. So we know from the last few weeks that Jesus was a storyteller. So he loved to use parables to tell a story and to really, I suppose, drive a message home. But what we're going to see today that you might not know is that as well as telling stories, Jesus loved to ask questions too. So he was a bit of a, a quiz master. Who knew? Now, I love a good quiz. So when I was in school, we used to have table quizzes and we'd go up against other schools in this sort of league thing for the chance to win like a dairy milk bar or something like it was the 90s. But I kind of carried that love of quizzing into my adulthood. So you know yourself, you'll be flicking through the stations and you'll come across maybe the chase or something. And I'm not going to miss the opportunity to show off the old armchair genius. And I'm slightly competitive. And quizzes gives me a chance to win at something because if you've seen my husband, you know I'm not going to be beating him at football or pool or bowling or pretty much anything. So quizzes is my opportunity. <laughs> and when I say that, I'm not talking about all quizzes. Like I've never watched more than 30 seconds of Mastermind or University Challenge or anything like that because they're just far too highbrow for me and there's no fun in feeling like a dope. But... <laughs> If you give me the chase or house of games or something even better, like something completely useless, like 90s and noughties, pop music, I'm your girl. Like, honestly, if I could memorize scripture the way that I remember the words to 90s boy band songs, I would be a much better Christian. And I know I'm not alone in this, because if you cast your mind back to, to three years ago during COVID lockdowns, what were we all doing? Quizzes. Yeah, combining two of the things that we love most, connecting with other people, and being right. But the reason that I say that Jesus liked a bit of a quiz is because that's what we see him doing in the passage that we're going to be looking at today. Asking questions. And obviously the questions that he was asking were of much greater importance than the general knowledge stuff that we just watch for entertainment. Like there was nothing trivial about the, there was nothing trivial about the parables that he shared. Um, with the group that he was addressing, in this case, in the one that we're going to be looking at today, it was the religious leaders. So they were a group known as the Pharisees. So this was their moment in the hot seat as such. Jesus kind of puts them on the spot. Obviously not for the sake of trying to catch them out, but to really just reveal to them the condition of their hearts. So he tells them a parable known by us as the parable of two sons. And it's not to be confused with the par parable of the prodigal son, which also mentions two sons. This is a kind of a lesser known parable. It's quite a short parable, but it's very impactful all the same. So before we get to the passage, I just kind of want to give a bit of context as to what was going on at the time that this interaction with the religious leaders takes place. Because I think sometimes, especially with things like parables, 
and Bible stories, like we can read them in isolation. And if we do that, there's a risk that we'll miss some of the meaning. Like we see Jesus doing things, saying things, acting a certain way that doesn't necessarily fit in with our meek and mild image of Jesus. And yes, he is that. He is meek and mild at times. He's our good shepherd. He's gentle. He's compassionate and he's loving. And even when he was confronting sin, he had the ability to be gentle, to do that in a gentle way. Like if you think of the woman at the well. But that kind of approach wasn't necessarily working on the Pharisees. Why? Because they didn't know or they refused to see their need of him. So he needed to, to use a more direct approach when it came to them. So for context, I think the most important thing to remember is that this was the week that was leading up to Jesus' death. And we can't be exactly sure of the timeline of events, but we know that during that week, he went to the temple and he saw the sellers and the money changers and he flipped the tables. So he was angry at that. And then the next day he curses a fig tree that had no uh, fruit on it. It just had leaves. So it just looked good from a distance. But up close, it was all leaves and no fruit. And Jesus didn't like that, either on trees or in people, as we'll see in a bit. Again, it's not exactly our holy infant so tender and mild image of Jesus because his speaking, his message gets less and less subtle, I suppose, as the week goes on. Like there's no ambiguity in it. So why was he like that? Well, I think it probably makes sense that the closer that he got to his death, the more urgency he would speak with, especially to groups like the religious leaders that were proven difficult to get through to. And not only that, they were actually leading others astray too. So that's the kind of general context for why Jesus was acting the way that he was acting this week. He wasn't just grumpy or angry because he was coming close to his death. Like every interaction, no matter how harsh it might seem to us, had an intention behind it. Like 2 Peter 3 verse 9 says, The Lord is not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance including these people that he reserved criticism for. So bear that in mind when we come to our passage today, which is from Matthew 21. If you want to turn there in your Bibles or begin to turn there. So Jesus is in the temple courts and we're told that while he was teaching, the chief priests and elders come along and they interrupt him. So they ask him, by what authority are you speaking and teaching and who gave you this authority? So they're challenging him. They're quizzing him about his authority. Pretty much saying, who do you think you are? But Jesus turns the tables back on them, metaphorically this time, and he gives them a question of his own. So we're picking it up in Matthew 21, verse 28. And Jesus says, what do you think? So he answers their question with a question. Then he moves into the parable. There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and said, son, Go and work today in the vineyard. I will not, he answered. But later he changed his mind and went. Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. He answered, I will, sir. But he did not go. And the question is, which of the two did what the father wanted? The first, the Pharisees answered. So Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John, that's John the Baptist, came to show you the way of righteousness and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. 
So that's it. That's the end of the parable. Like he didn't give any further explanation at all. He didn't even tell them whether they got the question right. So that seems kind of harsh, doesn't it? But it, like, especially if you think about these people, they're religious leaders, like they're absolutely highly respected, the moral authority of the society at the time. And he tells them the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. So I have to confess, when I first read this parable, I was a bit like, what? I was confused. Like, did they get the answer wrong? Why would Jesus rebuke them like that and not even give them any explanation? So in the event that it's not just me that was a bit confused about it, I'm not, hopefully not the only one who didn't get this parable or why Jesus reacted like that, then maybe we should start by just explaining it a little bit. Like what was the eternal truth that he was trying to teach the religious leaders and everyone else who was listening? Like there would have been a big crowd around at this time. So they all would have heard this interaction going on and they were probably a bit like, ouch, burn. Jesus won, Pharisees nil. And I do want to get into that reaction, like what was it that made him respond like that? But to do that, we need to understand the parable itself. So let's do that. So there are two sons. The father goes to the older one first, which would have been customary at the time. And he says, son, I want you to go and work in the vineyard today. And we're not gonna get into, I suppose, the symbolism too much, but basically, as we heard from Pastor Sean last week, the vineyard often represents the kingdom of God. So the father, the owner of the vineyard, in our case, God, asks his children to go to work, to do something to reap a harvest in the vineyard. And there's a bit of urgency attached to it, as the father says, today go and work in my vineyard. Not tomorrow, not whenever you're finished watching that Netflix series, not whenever you feel like it, he says, today, because delayed obedience is disobedience, amen? But anyway, the first son says, no, I won't. And obviously the father wasn't Irish because the Bible doesn't mention that the son got a good slap. But at the time and in this culture, it would have been really disrespectful for a son to refuse to obey his father. And we don't know why he said no. Maybe he was feeling a bit tired or a bit lazy that day. Or maybe he was a bit like, I'm not bothered. I'm going to inherit this vineyard anyway at some stage. So why would I go and work in it now? Like, it's already mine. I can live how I want and I'll still inherit it. And there's a lesson for us in that too, but that's a whole other sermon for another day. But anyway, later the son changes his mind and he goes to work in the vineyard. So that's the first son. The second son gets the same request. Son, go and work today in the vineyard. And the son says, I'll go. Or some translations say, I will, sir. So he even threw in the sir for good measure, like giving the father the height of respect. But some commentaries say there was an emphasis on the I in the response. So it was actually more kind of directed at the brother, like he didn't go, but I will. So it sounded on the surface like a respectful response to the father, but there's evidence to suggest that he was just kind of elevating himself above the brother. And as we can see in the passage, it wasn't even a genuine response anyway, because in the end, he didn't go to the vineyard. He didn't obey. He talked about obedience. He gave it the yes, dad, but he didn't actually do it. So he gave what we might call lip service. So Jesus sets this scene for the religious leaders, and then he gives them a little pop quiz. He says, which of the sons did what the father wanted? And there are plenty of other times in the Bible when the religious leaders were questioned on stuff and they'd like withdraw for a second. They'd pull off into a little huddle to confer amongst themselves. So Jesus obviously allowed a phone a friend or an ask the audience. And then they'd come back and a spokesperson would say, 
whatever, they'd give the answer. But there's no mention of them doing that here. They knew the answer. Straight away, they said, the first son. They were confident in it. And Jesus' response to them is incredible. He says, truly I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to show you the way of righteousness and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. So why did he react like that? And like I said earlier, I was kind of thinking, oh, they must have got the answer wrong. But that wasn't it at all. The religious leaders did answer the question correctly. It was the first son that did the will of the father because he acted. So despite his initial disrespect and rejection of the father, he later had a change of heart, better late than never. And that led him to act. The one who acted obeyed. And the second son didn't do the will of the father because he only talked about obedience. He didn't actually obey. So you might be beginning to see where I'm going with this. Like Jesus told this parable to this group of people, the religious leaders, because he was trying to get them to see you're just like that second son. You talk a good game. You're good at keeping up appearances. But in the end, it's just lip service. You're all talk, no actual obedience. And what was happening was they were like making up rules to try and keep people in line, hundreds of extra rules that the people couldn't possibly abide by. Like they were really ritualistic, really legalistic with no love behind anything that they were doing. Like if you remember, they actually started plotting to kill Jesus for uh, healing the man with the shriveled hand on the Sabbath because they interpreted that as work and they said, nobody should be working on the Sabbath. So we can kind of see why Jesus reserved some of his strongest criticism for them. And in other interactions with them, he calls them hypocrites, blind Pharisees, whitewashed tombs. And here in his response, he says, truly I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. So that would have been like red rag to a bold stuff because they thought of themselves so highly, certainly like higher than the tax collectors and the prostitutes in the hierarchy of sinners. But Jesus says, they're entering the kingdom of heaven before you. So why could he say that? Because the tax collectors and the prostitutes knew that they needed a savior. So they initially rejected Jesus and they were living sinful lives, but like the first son, they had a change of heart. They turned from their disobedience and actually did the will of the father. Whereas the Pharisees were like the second son. Yes, sir, but accounted for nothing because it was all talk, no action. And again, I don't think that Jesus was trying to be harsh with them for the sake of being harsh. He was trying to shock them into the reality of the way that God operates. Like, it's not about the show that you put on. It's not about a religious show because God sees the heart. And in 1 Samuel 16, verse 7, God tells Samuel, the Lord sees not as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And I think that's so important for us all to remember that God looks at the heart. And I've often thought about the reasons why the prostitutes and tax collectors were kind of singled out as being the worst kind of sinners, because we know that all sin is equal. But I think the reason for it may be that they had one thing in common. And that one thing was there was no way that they could hide the fact that they were sinners. Like if you were a prostitute, you'd need to advertise your services for want of a better word. And people would see customers coming and going from your house. And the tax collectors were publicly collecting dues to a foreign authority 
and they would always overcharge, so there was a cut in it for themselves. So those are very public kind of sins, like they couldn't hide it from others. And deep down, they couldn't hide it from themselves either. But on the other hand, Jesus is pointing out that the religious leaders are sinners who don't even recognize their sin. And when it's pointed out to them, like their hearts are so hard that they won't even accept it. So they're content to go on the way that they're living, like refusing to even recognize their sin. And they're definitely not going to repent of sin that they're not even prepared to recognize. But as we know, repentance is essential if we want to enter the kingdom of God. Like it was a massive, massive part of Jesus' message to the world and John the Baptist before him. Jesus mentions it in his response to the Pharisees. He says, for John came to you to show you the way of righteousness and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. So how can we apply this parable and this whole interaction to our lives? Like how is it relevant to us? Well, what I found about the passage is there's a lot of opportunity to compare ourselves to the various characters in the story, isn't there? And that's never a good idea. Like I heard something a while ago about comparison that stuck with me. It said, if we compare ourselves to others, we pitch ourselves as either better than them or worse than them. And neither of those comparisons glorify God. But if we're honest, like really honest with ourselves, remembering that God sees the heart, we might be prepared to admit that sometimes we do have that tendency to compare. Like you might be tempted to say, I'm not like the second son, I'd be obedient. And I'm not like the first son because I do what the father asked straight away. I wouldn't put it off. And I'm not like a prostitute or a tax collector because I don't sin like that. And I'm not like a Pharisee because they were just awful. And thank God, I'm not like them. But you know who used to say things like that? Thank God I'm not like them, the Pharisees. So it's very, very easy for us to kind of get sucked into that Pharisee mindset. We can hear a word and be like, you know, nudging the husband or saying, now I hope Mary's listening to this. This is such a good word for her. We have to really examine ourselves and ask, have I allowed those kind of thoughts, that sort of a mindset to creep into my life? Like, do I base my righteousness on the fact that I read my Bible every day? and I only have worship music on my Spotify playlist, and I go to church every Sunday, and I tithe, and I serve on three ministry teams, and I go to my life group on a Wednesday, and I'm really nice to people all the time. Like, all of those things are great. Do those things, that's working in the vineyard. But what I'm saying is, if they're the things that you use as your measure of righteousness, or if you're doing it for approval from people or from God, you have it twisted, because God sees the heart. Jeremiah 17 verse 9 says, the heart is deceitful above all things. So we can deceive ourselves, but we can't deceive him. That's why we really have to do that work on examining ourselves. And this has so challenged me as I've been preparing this because you should never ever get up in front of people and try and pass on something that you're not putting into practice in your life or at least trying to implement in your life yourself. So I've had to challenge my own perception around the religious leaders as these sort of pantomime or cartoon villains and ask myself, could I be a Pharisee? Do I have Pharisee type mindsets or behaviors? And we have to remember that initially the Pharisees began with great attentions of steering God's people back to right living, like being set apart. That's what the word Pharisee means, set apart. 
But by the time Jesus came along, they were so completely rule obsessed that they couldn't even see him for who he was. So we have to ask ourselves these deep questions because do you know what? The enemy is probably not going to tell you. Like before I recommitted my life to the Lord and came back to him, the enemy was constantly in my head saying, you're this, you're that. And he'll do that because he's the accuser. But if you have Pharisee tendencies, the enemy is probably delighted. So there mightn't be a peep out of them. It's going to take the Holy Spirit to point it out to you. And his conviction is gentler. So we have to be prepared, you know, to, to listen out for that still small voice. And on the other hand, you might be here today and you know you're not a Pharisee because you just feel awful about yourself. Like your internal dialogue is, you're rotten. What are you doing here? You hypocrite. If they knew what you were up to last night or what you did during the week, like you are just the lowest of the low. And you mightn't be a prostitute or maybe you are. And you're probably not a tax collector because they're more co covert about that sort of stuff these days. It comes straight out of your wages. But you're, you're stuck in sin, stuck in habitual sin. And there's a voice in your head saying, you're no good. You'll never be free of that. You could never be a good Christian. And either way, whether you've identified a bit of a Pharisee mindset in yourself or you feel stuck in your sin, Jesus gives us the solution in our scripture passage for today. So he's critical of the religious leaders for not availing of the cure for their hard hearts, like the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. They repented. So he said they would be entering the kingdom of heaven before them because they believed John's message. John's message was the cure. So what was John's message? Well, we've already touched on it. John came with a message of repentance. We need to repent. We need to build in a practice of repentance in our life. And I know that that's, you know, a term that's maybe being sullied a bit by that kind of turn or burn preaching, but we shouldn't shy away from it. Like, it's not a bad word. It just means recognizing our sin and having remorse, resolving to change and receiving forgiveness. And if you look it up in the dictionary, it'll probably kind of emphasize the first bit, especially around remorse. But true repentance is more than that. It's more than lip service. It should lead to change behavior. Again, not in our own strength, but through the power of the Holy Spirit. And it's not like human relationships where we sometimes have to go back and earn forgiveness. Like Psalm 51 verse 17 in the NLT says, the sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart. And again, the beauty of our God is that he sees the heart. If we are genuinely repentant before him, we'll absolutely be reconciled to him. We don't have to earn his forgiveness or pay him back. So it's, it's almost like a three-step process. It's a change of mind, which leads to a change of heart, followed by a change of behavior in that order. And it's also kind of like a three-point turn, you know, like they make a big deal out of when you're, when you're learning to drive. So the first part is realizing, okay, I'm facing the wrong way. I want to go that way. And then you need to do that sort of turning action. And there's a bit of awkwardness at first because you're in the middle of the road and you have to pull back a bit and, and keep turning. You have to keep moving until you're facing the right way. But then when you are, you're set. You drive off in the direction that you want to go. So you start living the way that you really want to live. Again, enabled by the power of the Holy Spirit. So can I ask the, the worship team to come back as I close? 
We're gonna keep with the driving theme and sing Jesus Take the Wheel, aren't we guys? No, we're definitely not. <laughs> but I'm also gonna ask my husband uh, to come and join me up here because he's gonna help me with a little illustration that I have. So I wanna share a quick um, takeaway thought with you that I had um, just in terms of helping to combat the Pharisee mindset. Like it's a simple thing, but it really just struck me about how passionate Jesus was about getting the Pharisees to see the problem with their hearts. So you'll remember that this was something that Jesus felt was really, really important to know. So in the week where he didn't pull any punches, this was what he decided to speak on. And he might've been what we would call harsh with them, but I really believe, genuinely believe that he wanted them to repent because it's not his will again that any should perish. So he took the time to correct them. And then Matthew took the time to write it in his gospel so that we could benefit from it. So Graham has some bread here. It's nothing fancy. It's not from Bread 41 across the road. It's just a croissant. But I want you to imagine that this is really nourishing, wholesome bread. And we're told all the time to pray, give us this day our daily bread. And we know Jesus identifies himself as the bread of life. So as a Christian, I know that I need to consume this bread every day. So it's part of my daily routine. So I get up in the morning and I read my Bible and I take a bite. And I might chew it around a bit, but I'm in a hurry because maybe I hit the snooze button a few too many times. So I'm rushing, I get out the door, I get in the car, I put on my worship music, I take another bite. Or maybe on Sunday mornings, you come into church and you sing worship songs, bite. <laughs> you take in the word, bite. And then on the way out, you say, bless your brother, bless your sister. You pray for someone. So... You, like you encourage someone with a scripture. So it's on your lips. It's in your mouth. People can see it and they can hear it. But I think sometimes as Christians, it's here and it's here, but it's not here and it's not here. So you can be taking bites and chewing, but not really swallowing. And it's in the swallowing and in the digesting that we get the nourishment from it. Because I think as Christians, sometimes we can just go through the motions, forgetting that the point of these daily routines is that we would come to him and let the bread of life really feed us, nourish us, really digest it, nourish us and, and just cause us to grow. Because it's not about what's in our heads or rolling off our tongues. That's exactly what the Pharisees had. It's all about what's in the heart. It's about what we're really swallowing, digesting, and getting into closer relationship with him. So I'm just gonna close in prayer, amen. Thank you, Lord, for the truth of your word and for the power to show us how to live. We thank you, Lord, for your Holy Spirit who leads us into all truth and enables us to live for you. We thank you, Lord, that you see the heart. You know where every single person is at, whether they're stuck in habitual sin or a particular mindset that you want to free them from today all with the aim of growing closer in intimate relationship with you. And Lord, I pray for every heart and every mind here today. I speak against the condemnation of the enemy. Your Holy Spirit gently convicts, but I thank you that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We thank you, Lord, that you are not mad at us. You are mad about us. And Lord, I pray for anyone here today who feels like a wretch, that they would lay hold of that amazing grace 
Lord, you long for us to bring our failings to you so that your Holy Spirit can enable us to change what needs to be changed and truly live for you. It's your kindness that leads us to repentance. So I thank you, Lord, for sending your son, Jesus, who died so that we would be made right with you. I pray that this week we would seek you as our daily bread so that we can grow in all that you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed this message. If you'd like any more information, please visit stmarkcity.ie. Have a very blessed week.